Something that's been so striking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the lengths the Ukrainian people have gone to to fight back. Ukrainian citizens have planted themselves in front of oncoming Russian tanks. Families have been painfully separated as men of fighting age are prohibited from leaving the country. And others have learned how to make Molotov cocktails to defend themselves in case Russian soldiers reach their towns. You have a message to Vladimir Putin. What is it? What would I tell him, he says? I would tell him he can go f*** himself. And of course, as emotions run high, there are lives being affected and lost every day. Now we know from Ukrainian authorities that some five people were killed. There were clearly a number of rockets that landed all over here, lots and lots of collateral damage. Uh, you can still see some of the blood. The death toll is rising on both sides, and there are fears it will only get worse in the days to come. In today's episode, we go back to Kyiv to take stock of the human toll, the loss, suffering, and resilience of everyday Ukrainians and those on the front lines. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rind. Joining us today is CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance. He has been in the capital of Kyiv for weeks now. And Matthew, I'm talking to you on Friday. It's been a little more than a week since the invasion began. Can we go back quickly? What was it like for you uh, as the strikes um, started coming in? Yeah, it feels like it's been a it feels like it's been a lot longer than a week, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, well, going casting my mind back to that to that time. I remember I was up on the roof of the hotel where we're staying in the center of Kiev, and we just listened to that incredible, astonishing speech address by Vladimir Putin, which was very rambling in which he you know, kind of talks about his justifications for his problems with Ukraine. And, and at the end of it, he said he'd launched this special military operation. It's too early for a response, Don, if I'm absolutely honest, because this, is, this has come out of nowhere. This, this and then, of course, I was up on the, on the balcony, on the roof of the hotel, as I say, and then within minutes... Who resists? Oh! That's when the, the first booms could be heard. Here, behind me, I told you we shouldn't have done the live shot here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. I look back at that video of myself and I, I look quite flustered. You know, I was in the middle of a live shot. Um, I think I was with Don Lemon on his show. I don't know whether our viewers or whether you in the studio there could hear, uh, what, we could what, hear it, what I just heard. You could, right. Yeah. So, and I had to stop the live shot and sort of kneel down and put my flak jacket on and my helmet so I wasn't wearing it. There wasn't a war on until that point, right? Yeah, I can hear you throughout all of that. I'm sorry about the... the, it, the Matthew, the, just so you know, your your flak jacket is covering your microphone if you can somehow get it out. Right. Yep, here it is. Here there it you is. go. Now, loud and clear. And I obviously looked a bit um, alarmed and surprised because I was. I mean, it, it really wasn't up until that moment that I really believed that Vladimir Putin would take this this step. And remember, I mean, I've been covering Russia for much of my adult life. Uh, you know, I'm not alone amongst my colleagues uh, in being shocked at the fact that Vladimir Putin decided to to take this dramatic, violent step. And so I was a bit, what's the word? What's the word? Discombobulated is a big word. Mm. And, and I felt like that. And, and then, of course, you know, the other factor in all of it was that I didn't know what was going to happen next. 
you know, this was a, a suddenly a new thing that was happening, uh, airstrikes, missile strikes on the Ukrainian capital. And, you know, they were quite far away, you know, maybe 20 miles away, um, which sounds like a long way, but it's not when you've got a cruise missile landing, you know, it's still very, very loud indeed and bone shaking. But of course, there was, every, you know, at that time, I was sort of c- concerned that the, the strikes might start coming in right in the streets around us, on the building I was in, I, you know, you don't know. Mm. So it's quite alarming um, and shocking and, you know, um, you know, but also just, I, I think, astonishing to be there at the moment when this historic step by Russia was taken. Yeah. So after that all began, you actually got to go venture out onto those streets. What did you experience there in, in the, the hours after this all began? So I mean, this was this was late at night, you know, early in the morning local time when when the airstrikes began. So I didn't do anything right then, apart from carry on talking live. The next day, I went out to see what we could what we could find, um, and I think the first the first piece we did was we we met up with the civilian defence forces. Call themselves the territorial defence, and these are just ordinary people with no military training. I've never been in a. I've never served an army. They've been given guns, Kalashnikovs, uh, assault rifles by the local authorities, and they were all very, very scared about what was going to happen next. So you I shot have... a gun in school, you work in an office, but now you're defending your, your city. Correct. I spoke to a couple of these people. I, I didn't think I would uh, join the, uh, this unit uh, just two days ago. I thought... One of them was a waiter in a restaurant. The other one was a... Works in a bank. I mean, I mean, it's it's ha- it gets close to the point that I have completely uh, changed my mind, and I have decided that you know I should do something about it. You know, these are people who just the day before would never have joined. They said would never have considered joining the military to defend their country mm. or defend their city. It's just like that's not the kind of people they were. They just wouldn't have done it. You know, they were some of them were quite old as well. It's not like. They were like young, young military age men uh, for the most part. But when the, the Russians started started bombing, you know, when the tanks started rolling in, something changed in in their in their in their minds, and they decided to, you know, they were committed to defending their streets and their families and their land. And I think that's that's what's happened across the country. You know, and so if Vladimir Putin and his military planners had thought, as I think they may have thought, that this was going to be a, a walk in the park, that the, the Ukrainian defences would have collapsed and that people would welcome them with flower petals. I mean, he was, he was very, that was a, that was a big misjudgment. Um, but I think there is evidence that, that that is the judgment he made. And I think the Russians have learned a very painful lesson about the nature of nationalism, national pride, patriotism in, in, in Ukraine and the ability of Ukrainians to defend their own country. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because a lot of experts said that after Russia invaded, it would only be a matter of days before the country fell altogether. But it seems like they've had a much tougher time here. Why? Well, I think it's a combination of two things. Firstly, that thing that I just mentioned, that it, it has been underestimated. Uh how strongly Ukrainians would defend their own land. And the second thing is is related to it. I think the Russians sent in an underpowered invasion force. You know, they, they sent in, first of all, 
special forces to seize strategic airports uh, around Kiev. I'm just talking about Kiev now because that's, that's, that's where I've had my main experience in, 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 in this conflict. They seize strategic airports around the city, a couple of them. Uh, the idea being we assume to you know, create an air bridge so they could bring in more supplies, more troops, more armour. But you know, they may have held those airstrips for a while. But there was fierce resistance to take them back, fierce fighting counterattacks to, to take them back. And so they never managed to do it. Um, and so this, this whole idea that the country was going to collapse in a few days just didn't, just didn't materialize. And, and it's made the, the, the Russian strike force look underpowered. Um, and so it's been a combination of the, uh, the, will, the will of the Ukrainian people to fight and defend their country and the sort of poor military planning on the part of the of the Russian forces, they came in without enough forces. You know, the problem with that, I suppose, is that the Russians are likely to, as they are now doing, redouble their military efforts. You know, they're not going to back down, they're going to double down, is the line I came up with. And that seems what they're doing. And even though the will to defend the country is still strong amongst many, many Ukrainians, that's not necessarily going to be enough to change uh, the outcome of this if if the Russian military persists in pounding you know, the towns and cities across across the country, unfortunately. Yeah, they, it seems like the, the doubling down is, is really ramping up in terms of civilian targets and we've seen what's gone on at uh, the nuclear power plant. Is the frustration, desperation, why have they kind of ramped up their tactics here? Well, I mean, they had two options. They could have, um, you know, shrugged their shoulders, turned around, and gone back to gone back to Russia, right? And and that would have been a, a humiliating defeat for Vladimir Putin. You know, tried to invade Ukraine and failed in the first few days. You know, I think a lot of people would have liked that, obviously, to, to have seen that. But knowing Vladimir Putin, you know, having covered him for so long, that was never something that anybody who who has been covering Russia would have expected him to do. He, he he will escalate in the face of, you know, defeat. And we know that now about him. Um, and so, you know, the only option they had left was to, was to come in with even more forces. Right within the past few hours, there has been a ferocious battle here on the outskirts of Kiev. And certainly we've sort of seen the aftermath of Ukrainian counterattacks against Russian armor, armored columns. columns. Look, so recent the battle, this vehicle is still smoking. There's still smoke coming out. And it's been, you know, a trail of devastation. You know, really, I mean, I'm sure the Ukrainians have been hit hard as well, but the Russians have definitely been blooded by this. And I've seen that with my own eyes. Look, as evidence, I don't want to show you this too much, but there's a, there's a body there. That's a Russian soldier that is lying there dead on this bridge. And that, I expect that was quite a shock to the military planners at the Kremlin. Right. In terms of the, the kind of ingenuity that we've seen from the Ukrainian people, this will to fight back, what has struck you the most? Like what kind of tactic has surprised you that people have kind of come up with on the fly to counter this aggression? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of things to, to both ends of the spectrum when it comes to sophisticated weaponry. On the one hand, they have been flooded with... Uh, quite sophisticated weaponry from Western countries, from the United States, uh, Javelin, anti-tank missiles, something similar from the Brits as well. Um, even the Swedes. You know when you're on the wrong side of uh, 
uh, you know, of the war when the, the when Sweden decides to arm your enemy with 5,000 anti-tank missiles, right, which is what they've done with the Ukrainians. Um, and then there's the, the anti-aircraft missiles, the Stingers, and whatever else they've got from various Western states as well. So they, they, they have got boxes and boxes of these things. And they are using them to full effect against, you know, basically second-rate, third-rate Russian armor as it as it comes in. I mean, and it's just it's you know with a sophisticated anti-tank weapon, you know, there are very few tanks in the world that can defeat that, as as Russian Russian armored vehicle drivers and uh, passengers are are finding out. So that's one aspect of it. At the other end of the spectrum, oh, there's, a, there's a petrol bombs. Yes. There's your Molotov cocktails. Yes. Show me. Pakajiminia. You've got like little old ladies in apartment blocks that are making petrol bombs, Molotov cocktails, and you know, putting them in crates in beer bottles, hmm. you know, and carrying them down to those territorial defense guys that I told you about. And you made these yourself? No, the people from this building bring me this. The, 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 the people from the from local... From this building, they bring me this. Yeah, you know, they're carrying them down in crates. They're filling them up with petrol, putting rags in the top. And they're, they're, you know, preparing and using these things to just, like, harass the Russian soldiers. And, to, and to, I mean, obviously, they're deadly, these Molotov cocktails, you know, and, and they're, they're easily made. And you've got – so you've got, you know, the whole the – whole, you've got the Ukrainian army, which some of which is very battle-hardened and good. But you've got then layers and layers of defences right down to the little old lady, you know, in, in, the, in the flat upstairs, in the apartment upstairs, who's making a petrol bomb. So that's a very tough – war to win you might be able to take the land if you're a russian army but how are you going to hold that land it's going to be really hard matthew got an interview with ukraine's most protected citizen its president Zelensky's message and the links chance went to get it when we come back this podcast is supported by sleep number Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Matthew, you spoke to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last week as part of this exclusive interview with Reuters and CNN. What goes into interviewing a wartime president, somebody who said he's public enemy number one, um, you know, afraid for his life? How does that come together? Number one target is what he said. He said he's the number one target of the of the Russians, and his family is the number two target. Hmm. And that's an acknowledgement that you know the, the Russians want nothing better than to topple him and to replace him with a pro pro Russian puppet uh, government. 
uh, and if that means they they have to kill him, then you know he, his belief is that that they would do that and his family if necessary to get to him. So you can imagine the security measures around him. I mean, he is he could have left the country at any time. In fact, he was offered, you know, by the United States and by other countries, uh, you know, sort of to be picked up, safe passage out of the country. And he said something a really catchy phrase. He said it in Ukrainian. He said something like, "I don't need a lift. I want weapons, yeah. not a lift. I, I don't want to ride. I don't want to ride. Yes, I don't want to ride. I want weapons, which is um." Yeah, remarkable, um, and it speaks to you know the the his courage in the face of what must be. I mean, an absolutely. I mean, on a personal human level, it must be absolutely terrifying to know that you've got Vladimir Putin uh, ahead of one of the most powerful militaries in the world who is out to get you personally and your family. That's you know we talk about the pressure we're under here as journalists, but I mean, come on, you know, if if the Kremlin even indicated they're out to get to get us and to destroy us we'd be out in a heartbeat um so he has the courage to and he's a national leader of course and so this is why he's doing this to stay in ukraine and to try and lead his people as best he can through this but the security measures that he's taking of course are enormous you know we 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 got a call can you be to this at this location in an hour and i was like yes fine we, we got down there in our own vehicle then we were taken out of the vehicle by you know troops put in another vehicle driven around the back streets of central kiev um uh, uh into a courtyard taken out of the vehicle searched then we went into a the basement of a building through it was completely pitch black you had to have torches you know there was no you couldn't see anything at all, you know, carrying all our equipment. Sandbags everywhere, you know, you know, troops with machine guns on every kind of in every room, sort of like looking at the you know, looking at the doorways. Until we got to this sort of quite heavily fortified, you know, bunker room, cellar or something, in the bottom of a building. We waited there for a bit and then he, he came along with his aides and, um, and spoke in a mixture of English and in Ukrainian. Did anything substantial come out of that? Is there any hope as the world watches for diplomacy? They decided... They I tried to get him, because he speaks English and I've interviewed him before in English. And, and I said to him, please, can we do this in English? And he said, look, you know, in English, he said to me, look, you know, you can ask me whatever question you like, but I need to be free uh, to answer the question in whatever language I like. And do you think you're wasting your time or do you think they're ready? We'll see. And so he, he, he moves between English and Ukrainian. The response you see today, how we work, how our army works and defends us, is a testament that we're ready for anything. You know, this is a moment of Ukrainian patriotism. Every time he speaks, he is aware that he represents Ukraine, so he likes to speak Ukrainian when he does that. Matthew, is it normal for a president who is freely admitting that he's being targeted to be posting all these messages on social media, doing interviews, having press conferences? What, what's his game plan here? All I can say is that, I mean, clearly, you know, he sees these appearances on social media, Vladimir Zelensky does, and his appearance on CNN and, and the press conference he's doing as a sign of defiance, as a sign to his own people that he is still, you know, in charge, that he's still getting his message out. And we're seeing him posting almost every day, sometimes a couple of times a day, social, social media videos of him sort of walking around the streets, you know, addressing the Ukrainian people, you know. It's the, it's the it's the best way I think for him to continue his conversation with the people he is leading through this conflict, and you know when you pop up on CNN, uh, if you're the leader who the Kremlin wants to kill, you know it's a, it's a it's a bit of a it's a, it's cocking a snook, isn't it, to to your enemies when you when you do that, and I think 
I think he, he probably he obviously is aware of that. And I think he is enjoying the idea that he can pop up not and evade detection by the by the Russians and 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 make these defiant speeches to his people. Yeah, I want to ask about the people that he's been directly speaking to. You've been in Kiev for a while now. What is life like there for the people who haven't fled, who haven't enlisted, or just kind of hunkering down, figuring out what comes next? So, I mean, I'm in in the center of Kiev um, at a hotel where much of the foreign media are staying right now. It, 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 you haven't got much choice. You haven't got many options, actually, when it comes to central Kiev because everywhere is closed down. There are no shops open, there are no restaurants open. Most hotels are closed. So the international media is sort of focused on you know, this one hotel um, in the center of town, which is still able to secure food supplies and, and to feed us twice a day. So that we're very grateful to them for uh, for what they're doing. But in terms of the the rest of the city, I mean, it's 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 on lockdown. Mm. And, and if I'm absolutely honest with you, when we're not moving around the city that much at the moment. There's a curfew in in place most of the day. Um, a, a lot of people who wanted to get out have have already gotten out, um, and there are obviously hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people that have left the towns and cities across the country. You know, but I, I was in a part of the northern part of the city a few days ago. Obolon is the little suburb. There'd been some confrontation with Russian forces there um, the day before. And there were a lot of people queuing up outside shops. You know, um, when the curfew's lifted, they nip out to whatever shops are open and see if they can stock up on water and food supplies and things like that. Um, people were very defiant, very angry that this was happening to them. Um and so, you know, there was no sign at that early stage that their will was was buckling. Um, also, I mean, there's the bunkers, the subway stations, the metro stations. I'm going out now and I'm, I'm going to be meeting people in the bunkers around Kiev um, who are uh, sort of huddled there, you know, con- concerned about the bombs that are coming into these residential neighborhoods and the attacks against them. And so, you know, there, there really is... a a, a, a very acute sense of fear and anxiety amongst the civilian population in this city. And that's why so many people have you know, taken refuge in these underground bunkers, these metro stations, these, you know, basements, wherever they can to, you know, to shelter from the bombs. And so, you know, people are very scared, obviously. You've got, we've got this you know, enormous column of Russian artillery and tanks on the outskirts of the city. It's moving very slowly. There's been some technical problems, apparently. But yeah, you've got this sort of sense of pend- impending doom in the city if the Russians eventually manage to encircle it and they position their artillery as they are doing. You know, we could be looking at a real, I mean, the battle for Kiev, the assault on Kiev will be potentially incredibly destructive and very, very bloody indeed. Already a lot of people are dying and, um, and, and that is only going to get worse if the Russians persist. So many Ukrainians have family and friends in in Russia, which I find you know really fascinating. Have you talked with any of them? Like, how are they? Are they staying in contact. How are those relationships? How have they been frayed since this all began? I mean, I know a lot. Of, I live in Russia, right? So I I, I know a lot of Russians, and I know uh, that a lot of people are horrified at what is happening. Uh, a lot of ordinary people are bemused that this is taking place. And, you know, even though there has been a conflict between 
Ukraine and Russian-backed forces in the east of Ukraine for some years, maybe seven or eight years. You know, th th there's, there's on a personal level, you know, there is very little animosity between Ukrainian and Russian people. Um, and it's actually what Putin says. You know, Putin says, you know, we're one people. He says it all the time. Of course, he, what he means is that Ukraine doesn't really exist. Mm. But what a lot of Russians hear is that, you know, well, yes, we are kind of like of the same sort of ethnic group or the same sort of, you know, cultural, we have the same cultural kind of history. And so, yes, it must be very traumatic, uh, especially for those people that have you know, relatives in Russia or Russians who have relatives in Ukraine to see what's unfolding here right now. So you mentioned you live in Russia, so you've kind of had a front row seat to Putin and, and kind of his grandstanding for some time now. But what feels different about this this conflict, this war zone, than ones you've covered in the past? I guess, I mean, right, I have covered a number of conflicts in the past, including a number of Russian conflicts. You know, I remember the, the war in Georgia in 2008, which was really Vladimir Putin's first sort of foreign adventure as he became more robust in his foreign policy. And that was followed up by the bombing of Syria and the support for Bashar al-Assad. And that was followed up by the backing, you know, the annexation of Crimea and the backing for pro-Russian rebels in the east of the country. You know, and then we've got this. And I, I guess what, what feels what feels different is that, that, that all of those other conflicts were, were ve felt very limited in in, in scope, you know, they you, you could see really that they weren't going to lead anywhere, you know, much. You know, okay, you know, they they had an impact, but they didn't have a a, a world changing impact. And, and I feel that what's different about this conflict is that Putin has stepped over the you know over the Rubicon. You know, he has. You know, we are in a different world now to the one we were in two weeks ago. Where if you believed Putin as as I did was a rational actor and would do nothing that would fundamentally plunge the world into insecurity, then you have to reassess that right now as, as we are all now reassessing. It's so open-ended, this, this conflict. It feels like it could escalate out of control sometimes. You know, and you have to sort of check your, 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 your emotions because you know, it's really worrying about what, what might come next. You know, there's been... You know, he put his, nucle his strategic nuclear forces on high alert. You know, I think it's the first conflict I've covered, and I've I've spent a career, you know, unfortunately covering wars uh, that I've really felt is is global in its dimensions and geopolitically, you know, transformational. You know, I I don't know what kind of Russia country I'll, I'll be going back to when this is over. Hmm. I mean, the stuff that's happening in Moscow right now is. Quite frankly, I mean, I don't even understand. I don't. I don't recognize it. And I guess. I guess one of my worries is, you know, what? What? How will Putin react to this, you know, full frontal economic assault and this rebellion by vast swathes of his population to his policy in Ukraine? I mean, I don't know how he's going to react to it. Is he going to back down? Is it going to be a palace coup, and he'll be ousted, or is he going to you know, do something crazy? You know, I, I, we, we, literally, you know. I mean, I'm a CNN correspondent, and I pick my words carefully. I mean, we, we just don't know. All right, Matthew Chance, they're in Kiev. Uh, thanks so much, and please stay safe. All right, thank you very much.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tug of War. We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates, subscribe to CNN 5 Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horowitz, Nathan Miller, and Paolo Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. Talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.